All right, so though we are still continuing in our Year with Jesus sermon series this morning, we are not in the Gospel of Luke. Today is one of the few times this year that the lectionary jumps us into the Gospel of John. And sometimes the lectionary's movements are a little random and wonky, and I don't really know why they go where they do. But today's jump makes sense. This story is not one that Luke chose to tell. Remember, the authors of the Gospels were trying to present their portrait of who Jesus really was, his character. So they made choices. And this is not a story Luke chose to tell. So to engage it, we have to look elsewhere. In the overarching trajectory of Jesus' story, next week is Palm Sunday, which is the week before we see him walk towards the cross and then rise from the empty tomb on Easter morning. And this story, when John tells it, happens on the night before Palm Sunday, which means it is helping us get towards Jerusalem, helping us get towards Jesus's final steps towards the cross. And so this is a, a good jump to John today. Our story is the anointing at Bethany, where Mary, the sister of Lazarus, there's a bunch of Marys, so it's that one, the one who goes with Lazarus, anoints the feet of Jesus. And so this story revolves around her actions and also Jesus' commentary about her and what she has done. And it does offer us the progression of Jesus' story. But more than that, I want to offer to us this morning that this story provides a portrait of true discipleship. What are some characteristics, or I'm going to use the word marks this morning. What are some marks of a true disciple? Well, we're going to dive into Mary's story. We're going to look at a lot of the actual scripture passages. And we're going to find three different marks together this morning. So since we haven't been journeying with John, since we don't know exactly where he's at in his story, I want to orient us a little bit. This anointing at Bethany happens in John chapter 12, but just a chapter before in John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. This is a huge story, monumental, right? It's very important, and it's very closely connected to the anointing at Bethany. So we're going to look at each of them. And Mary is present both times. In John chapter 11, Mary and her sister Martha send word ahead to Jesus that their brother Lazarus has fallen gravely ill. But Jesus waits for two whole days after he gets the message. And by the time he arrives at their house in Bethany, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Jesus is in the tomb for three. Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. Like, science of the time would have said this guy is deader than dead, right? Like, we'd still agree. But he's already been in there for four days when Jesus arrives. So there is mourning in full swing. Martha runs out to meet Jesus. She gives him her lament. Then Martha calls to Mary and says, come see the teacher. And we read this of Mary. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. These are the only words we hear from Mary, and they pack a punch. We are told that they're accompanied by her tears, and that when Jesus sees the tears of Mary and the mourners gathered around her, he himself is moved to tears. In a world where so many are against Jesus, these are his friends. Their grief is his grief. And so with tears wet on his face, Jesus turns and performs the most astounding miracle of his ministry. Let's pick up at the end of that story. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, 
his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. Two wonderful things happen as a result of this miracle. Mary and Martha receive their brother Lazarus back from death to life again, and many people come to faith in Jesus. But the consequences of this event are not all positive. But some of those who had seen Lazarus raised from the dead went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is the man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. In these words, we discover that Jesus has had to retreat for his own safety and protection. Instead of being able to stay and celebrate this incredible resurrection of Lazarus with his dearest friends, Jesus has to go away to a safer place for a time. And then, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it, so they might arrest him. In these final closing words of chapter 11, we are meant to see that the crisis has reached a boiling point. There is a bounty on Jesus' head, a warrant out for his arrest, and his conflict with the religious leaders has come to its climax. The stakes have been raised. For Jesus to walk towards Jerusalem are steps directly in the shadow of the cross. And so it is with appropriate solemnity that we turn to chapter 12 and read Jesus' next move. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. At the risk of his own life, Jesus has come back to Bethany. Bethany is two miles away from Jerusalem incredibly close to the seat of Jewish religious power and to the very ones who are plotting to take his life. At his own risk, Jesus has come back. And it's no wonder that he's the honored guest, right? This is the house where Jesus has brought life out of death. Mary and Martha and Lazarus has, have received the most unfathomable gift back from Jesus. And so we can imagine that even though, even though there are reports in the air even though this trip is probably costly for Jesus, there's also joy. It's that tension we talk about a lot, right? The grief and the joy together. Well, we hear that Mary is serving. Or, sorry, not Mary, Martha is serving. She's playing the hostess. We can imagine her bustling around with joy. 
We can see Lazarus reclining at the table like it tells us. Imagine the guests in attendance looking from Jesus to Lazarus and back again, watching Lazarus eat actual food. Like, this is an amazing moment. And then we're told what Mary chooses to do. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, if this doesn't sound weird to you, you got to give yourself a moment to kind of get out of the rut where, like, everything sounds the same because you've heard it before. Because this should sound really weird. (laughs) If this sounds like an intimate moment, that's because it was. If it sounds like a strange decision, that's because it was. In this culture, for Mary to be in the presence of a man with her hair unbound would have been considered sensual would have made her seem like a degraded woman. But she does it for Jesus. She makes that choice. We're given sensory information on purpose so that we see Mary knelt down at Jesus' feet. We're meant to imagine the brush of hair against skin on feet. And we're meant to experience the smell of a house permeated with perfume. This is an arresting moment. And it likely would have made all of the onlookers silent, right? Shocked them until Judas pipes up. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And it is from his words that we learn the true worth of the perfume. A year's wages? How could somebody give an account for something so costly poured out in one night? Maybe Judas has a point. But then we're given a glance behind the curtain. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And with just that simple commentary, we realize Judas's motives are not pure. And so with his objection hanging in the air, Jesus responds, and it's not Mary who receives his rebuke, it is Judas. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. True to form, Jesus has said something that sounds a little bit perplexing, He's introduced new information to the story. We didn't know anything about a burial before this. He says a weird comment about the poor. So for us to really learn what Jesus has to teach us here, we're going to break down his comment. The very first thing Jesus says is a defense of Mary. Leave her alone, he says to Judas, and presumably any other concerned party in attendance. You see, even though Mary has just initiated an intimate and extravagant act, Jesus comes to her defense. Even though what Mary has done would be considered sensual in their culture, Jesus is able to receive her purity of love without sexualizing her. He is able to honor Mary for her faithfulness above and beyond any expected social codes. Jesus values women, and he's not going to make them jump through the hoops that a lot of the rest of their culture does. It's part one. Part two of Jesus' response. He next announces the purpose behind Mary's extravagant act as one of preparation for his own burial. 
Mary hasn't spoken. I don't know if you noticed. We didn't hear her voice. We don't know her thoughts. But Jesus has ascribed purpose to her sacrifice. And some scholars will tell us it doesn't really matter if this is what Mary intended because Jesus has given a purpose in his larger plan to what she did. But I want to tell you, I think it does matter. And I think if we read between the lines of the story, we can come away believing that Mary knew exactly what she was doing. She was present on the day Lazarus walked out of the tomb. She saw the wonder lighting up some faces and the wickedness darkening others. She's heard the rumors of the religious leaders scheming, and she knows that there is a warrant out for Jesus' arrest. She knows more than we give her credit for. And in light of what Mary has seen and certainly must know, it's striking to me to think about her portrait of faithfulness, both in chapter 11 and chapter 12. You see, in each of these stories, Mary places herself at Jesus's feet. The very first time she speaks, and these are actually the only words we hear out of Mary, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And to us, maybe that sounds like a complaint or a lack of faith, but in reality, it's a lament. This is a statement of worship. Mary believes in Jesus and his healing power enough to be honest that what happened is not the right thing. Mary places herself at Jesus' feet in a posture of worship this very first time he comes to her house. But you know, she learns something that day. After this encounter, she learns that not only does Jesus have healing power, but Jesus has power of life over death. Jesus is able to save even when a situation seems beyond salvation. And so Mary, in the faithfulness of her worship, when she doesn't know that information, we meet her again in chapter 12 when she does. And it's remarkable to me that her choice is the same. She places herself at Jesus' feet. And this time she doesn't speak, but her incredibly unexpected action does speak. And if the first time she said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, it's as if now she says, because you are here, I know you're going to die. Because Bethany is on the way back to Jerusalem. He's walking resolutely towards his own death. And what does Mary do with that knowledge? She enters with Jesus into his own coming end. She sees and acknowledges his suffering, and she chooses a posture of solidarity with him in his suffering, just as he wept with her in hers. This is a powerful portrait of faithfulness we see in Mary. In both instances, we see extravagant, sacrificial worship, and we see her choose a posture of solidarity with the suffering one. These are the first two of the three marks of discipleship Mary shows us this morning. And to not miss the third one, we've got to spend one more moment thinking about feet. So interestingly enough, in John 11, 12, and 13, in each of those chapters, we find someone bent over feet. We already know in chapter 11, it's Mary bent over Jesus' feet, weeping upon them. In chapter 12, it's Mary bent over Jesus' feet, anointing them with perfume. And in chapter 13, it is Jesus bent over the disciples' feet, washing them. But let's not miss this. Before Jesus ever washes feet, Mary has washed his, both with her tears and with a costly perfume. 
You see, this is Mary showing the heart of a servant before Jesus has even taught the main 12 guys what this posture of service looks like. That's not a mistake. John has chosen to show us Mary as a true disciple before the 12 main guys have even learned the lesson. He also wants to show that she's a true disciple by contrasting her with the false disciple, Judas. It is no accident that from the beginning, John's commentary about Judas reveals his true nature. He is self-serving and wicked and corrupt. And so we realize that Judas is the contrast or the foil for Mary. He is false and she is true. And it's to continue to establish that point that John gives us the last part of Jesus's comment, which is the weirdest probably to our ears. He says, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And it's easy for us to feel a little uncertain when we hear that comment, because isn't the poor like a really big theme for you, Jesus? Like, what's up with that? It almost sounds like he's dismissing caring for the poor. But according to Mexican theologian Alicio Perez Alvarez, Jesus is communicating to Judas that he cannot just co-opt the language of solidarity with the suffering. In fact, New Testament scholar Matt Skinner adds that Jesus' words are a reminder not to mistake discipline for discipleship. In other words, it is not just talking about the poor, nor is it simply caring for the poor that makes one a true disciple. It is choosing any and all acts of service with a sincere love for Jesus at the center of your motivation. And this is what Mary has done for me, Jesus says. Mary has placed me, even my physical body, at the center of her worship. Not long from now, Jesus will be with the poor in the world. Among the poor is where Jesus will be found. Serving the poor will be serving Jesus. He himself says that. But for a few more moments, Jesus in the flesh reclines at a table with his friends, being lavished by the love and worship of a woman who knows who he really is and what he really faces. In just a few days' time, the scent of this perfume will fade into a mixture of sweat and blood and death. But Mary's portrait of true discipleship will live on. Extravagant, sacrificial worship, humble service, and solidarity with those who suffer. These are the three marks of discipleship we see in the story of Mary's anointing at Bethany. These are the lessons the gospel writer John wants us to learn, not from the actions of the 12 main guys, but from the example of one powerfully faithful woman. How can the example of Mary challenge us? How does it affirm us? And how does it invite us deeper into the journey of discipleship? Well, about each of these marks, I think we can offer ourselves a closing reflection question. In response to the first mark, we might ask, how might I worship more extravagantly and sacrificially, even throwing off cultural norms and expectations like Mary did? For you, this might be a question of where you can lean into sacrifice more deeply, where you can offer up something more costly. You might want to consider how you worship Jesus with your finances, with your time and priorities, or because we're holistic people, you might even want to think about the way that you interact with your body, 
and how you do or do not see it as a vehicle for worship. In response to the second mark, we might ask, what does it look like for me to assume a posture of humility and service in my daily life? Now, it's probably true that we don't need to kneel at someone's feet every day, but to be able to maintain a spirit of humility and service, might you need to consider the way that you talk about and to other people? Might you need to consider the way you view interruptions to your time? And might you even need to consider the value that you assign to certain people and things? And finally, in response to the third mark, we might ask, which suffering person or people is God inviting me to really see, acknowledge, and choose to stand in solidarity with? There is no shortage of suffering in this world. And when we choose to belong to the suffering one, we are called in his name to choose a posture of solidarity with those who suffer. Therefore, who is closest to you? Who really needs you to see and acknowledge and choose them? Worship, service, solidarity. Three simple and costly marks of discipleship. For these last two weeks of Lent, as we prepare ourselves to celebrate Easter, let's not miss the opportunity to think a little bit about Mary, and then in turn to consider ourselves so that we, like Mary, might pour ourselves out in true discipleship to the one who gave it all for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.